Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. First Chronicles chapter 20. Tonight we continue with our Reformation Month studies. Every October we set aside the Sunday evening services as Reformation Month. We have studied various aspects of the doctrines of the gospel that were resurrected in the Reformation of the 16th century. We have looked at the movings of God through various men and churches in various places, at the price that was paid, the stand that was taken, and various things of that nature. In the past, I have referred in a cursory way to what is known in history as the Counter-Reformation. And I felt that this year, since I had only two Sunday evenings in the month of October to deal with Reformation themes uh, because of the special meetings we're having, that uh, I would uh, go back to deal in a little more detail with the what's called the Counter-Reformation. We dealt with it last week uh, in a sort of an overview. And we return tonight to the second part, and really we're thinking of the, ref- the Counter-Reformation today. First Chronicles chapter 20, we read from verse 4. It came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite slew Sippai, that was of the children of the, of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was war at Gath, where was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six in each hand and six in each foot. And he also was the son of the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimea, David's brother, slew him. These were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen. The Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word for his name's sake. If our Bible reading makes anything clear, it surely is this, that the battle for truth never ends. It's a war in which there is no discharge. When David slew Goliath, The Jews must have thought that he had put an end to Philistine power once and for all, and that he had secured the peace of Israel. And of course, to a degree, he had. But the Philistines were not about to go away. There were continuing battles. First of all, Saul and his sons were slain in battle by the Philistines. And at that time, at least part of the kingdom of Israel came under quite a measure of bondage and servitude to the Philistines once again. Even when David became king over the whole land and had won stunning victories and had made Israel a queen among the nations, the Philistines erupted once And again, Goliath was not the only giant. Slaying Goliath was not the only victory that needed to be won. The same battle, in effect, all the persons involved may have changed a little, but the same battle, in effect, had to be fought over and over and over again. That is a truth that we should never forget. We can never rest at ease 
on the victories of past times. I am glad that this is a Protestant church that stands clearly in the tradition of the Reformed faith and the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was undoubtedly a mighty blow against Rome with all its superstitions and all its ungodly dogma. The victories of that Reformation were clearly won, but they were also dearly won. And its progress was marked at every step by the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. At first, it seemed like the Reformation would sweep away the old apostasy of Rome once and for all. But the Church of Rome has been at its work for a long time, and it knew how to respond. When Rome launched her counter-reformation, she set about redressing the balance. And I have to admit, she was very, very successful. Last Sunday evening, I noted that Rome had four planks in the counter-reformation platform. There was first of all the plank of what I called cosmetic reform a reforming of the face that didn't touch the heart, a reforming of certain actions that left the theology of Rome untouched and unchanged. Then there was the Roman Inquisition. This was the modification of the Inquisition that had been set up by Innocent III, had been resurrected by Rome in Spain in the days of Ferdinand and Isabella, and now it was being refined for other countries, but especially for Italy. And uh, its aim was to stop the gospel dead in Spain and Italy, and to spread its terror to the lowlands, to the uh, Netherlands, then even into some other countries where the gospel was having mighty effects. So the Roman Inquisition, which men could be by anyone, even out of spite, accused of heresy. Of course, to believe the Bible only as the source of truth, that was heresy. To believe in justification by faith alone, in Jesus Christ and His merit, that was heresy. To believe that Jesus Christ is the sole King and only Head of the Church, that was heresy. And for anyone to be named as a heretic, they could be immediately taken, thrown into prison, their goods confiscated, their entire estate squandered. They could be brutally treated with every instrument of torture. They could be what we would call today brainwashed until they were ready to admit anything or do anything or say anything that the inquisitors demanded. These inquisitors were skillful in their diabolical schemes. The Roman Inquisition was the second plank in the platform of the Counter-Reformation. The third plank was the Jesuit movement, the so-called self-styled Society of Jesus. The followers of Ignatius Loyola, the Pope's troops, his murderous thugs let loose across Europe, a diplomatic corps that dealt in cloak and dagger tactics, in bloodshed, in murder, in sedition, and the Jesuits. And then, fourth, and perhaps most telling of all, the Council of Trent. Turned out to be a master streak of, uh, stroke of genius to have the Council of Trent. It looked as if it would never get off the ground. Ever since the beginning of the Lutheran Reformation, the Reformers had been calling for a church council. The last thing in the world the Pope wanted in Europe in the days, the early days of the Reformation particularly, was a council. Because the Popes were so scandalously corrupt, the papacy was such a discredited organization, it was clear to each and every one that the pretensions of the Pope were a lie, and the church council 
would have seemed unmanageable to Rome at that time. And of course, since Luther was saying that a council is superior to the Pope, and that no infallibility rested with the Bishop of Rome, that a council of men meeting under God and around the Word of God had greater authority than the Pope, that made it even scarier to the Pope. And of course, when Luther went further and said the Scriptures were greater than a council, and that councils might err, and that popes might err, but the Scriptures never err, and that ultimately the conscience of a Christian is bound by and to the Bible, no matter what Pope said, no matter what council said, that made it even scarier still for the Pope. And so he didn't want the council. Finally, he decided he would have a council that lasted for over 20 years, and one of the reasons for that was every time they wanted to get it started, there was something to stop it. And so it sputtered and it uh, seemed to be getting nowhere. But ultimately, with consummate skill, the Pope brought it under his control. And so the council became really a mouthpiece for the Vatican. So these were the four planks. The first two of those, that is the cosmetic reform and the uh, Roman Inquisition, the first two largely succeeded in stopping the Reformation's progress in Spain and Italy and a few other places. The last two, the Jesuits and the Council of Trent, allowed Rome to go further and to go on the offensive and regain lost ground in places, especially she was targeting England, uh, which uh, the Romish church recognized uh, was going to be the key to the history of that era. And I think with... Uh, prescient understanding of world events, she could see that England was gearing up to become the determining nation and factor in the, the uh, history of the world, at least the Western world, in the years ahead. And so the last two, the Jesuits and the Council of Trent, allowed her to go on the offensive and try to gain lost ground. The Council of Trent, as I say, was a work of genius, not a work of truth but a work of genius. If you admire the genius of diplomacy and the skill of words to entwine men in uh, foolish and uh, self-defeating reasoning, it certainly was a work of genius. And it gained its aim, if not in Britain, at least at that time, then in many other places. But it was at a terrible cost because the Council of Trent, I don't want to rehash what I went over last week, in much detail, but the Council of Trent officially committed Rome to anti-Christianity. That's the, the vital point about Trent. There were many things in the Church of Rome that were open to criticism in the years that preceded this. There were many things that you would take issue with. A great deal of heresy and superstition and nonsense had come in uh, through all the dark ages, into the church. But it had not officially committed itself to anti-Christianity. And in the Council of Trent, it did that by its treatment of the subjects raised by the Reformers. Scripture, the merits of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, justification by faith alone, through the merits of Christ alone, all brought to us by grace alone. Its reaction to those things labeled it anti-Christian. Now, the Council of Trent has never been revoked. The Church of Rome has not revoked Trent. It cannot revoke Trent, and it will not revoke Trent. Rome may say other things on the subjects that Trent dealt with. But the Council of Trent is decisive for the Church of Rome on every issue raised by the Protestant Reformers. All later Roman Catholic formularies reflect the Council of Trent. They expound the Council of Trent. They apply the Council of Trent. Or they may even extend it to its logical conclusion. 
but they can never and will never replace one iota of the theological dogma of the Council of Trent. The latest catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Catechism, quotes liberally from the Council of Trent. And on every single issue of importance in the Protestant Reformation, the latest catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which is really a popular production of the decisions of the Second Vatican Council, this catechism rehashes, restates, and quotes and applies the Council of Trent. Now that's very, very important for us to recognize. Trent has never been revoked. In fact, I would still say, if I could use a figure of speech, it is still the engine house of the Church of Rome to this very day. You see, what this is saying is that despite the passage of time, despite the change that has taken place, at least on the surface, in relations with other churches, the Church of Rome has continued her counter-reformation. It is still her aim and objective to reclaim all the ground that was lost to the Protestant reformers. It is still her aim and objective to swallow up every Protestant communion and every Protestant country. And it is alarming to see how far she has progressed and with what success her diabolical endeavors have been crowned. In times past, she used sedition and rebellion. You'll find that very particularly in the age immediately following the Reformers. When the Jesuits got into top gear, they developed a particularly poisonous doctrine of regicide or king murder as a, an acceptable way of winning back lost kingdoms. There are stirring stories, uh, thrilling stories in many ways. There's something that you would expect in the uh, James Bond spy novel type of thing. Only this wasn't James Bond. These were the followers of uh, Ignatius Loyola, where uh, in the England of Queen Elizabeth, they were up to every devilment and every device. They were involved in every plot. And the, the life of the queen was constantly under threat. There was one plot after another. And they were all being hatched by the Jesuits. And England, of course, was not the only place where the Jesuits were about their murderous work. However, these policies really backfired. And the Jesuits became so dangerous that even a self-styled infallible pope had to suppress them. They became so dangerous, he wiped them out. Of course, he didn't wipe them out. To suppress them is one thing. They sim simply went underground. And then, of course, a little later, another infallible pope, without, of course, contradicting the first infallible pope, he reinstated them. But through all that toing and froing, the Counter-Reformation seemed to have run its course, and it seemed to have failed. During a large part of the 19th century, Rome seemed to have lost her battle entirely. Her influence, at least in Europe, was at a low ebb. The republicanism of France, the uh, great and terrible goings-on where Rome was taken to the rack, as it were, they really destroyed the confidence of the Pope. Then the movement for Italian nationalism also was a dagger blow at the heart of the papacy. And certainly in the 19th century it seemed that Rome had lost the battle and her influence was at an all-time low. Some Protestant post-millennialists in Europe indeed felt that Rome was so low that uh, the beast had been defeated and the, the millennium was about to dawn upon the earth. 
That was a fairly common view among Protestants. But then in 1870, the Pope called the First Vatican Council. Again, it was a controversial council, and uh, in some aspects it appeared to be quite a failure. But the reality was it was a new start on the road to completing the Counter-Reformation. And today, Rome is very near the end of that road. Britain is today largely a godless nation. It has a state church that is statedly Protestant, effectively Romanist. It has a monarchy which by British constitutional law must be Protestant. I owe allegiance as a subject of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I owe allegiance to her according to British constitutional law only so long as she is Protestant. That is the law of the land. The fact of the matter is, however, that the British monarchy has kowtowed to Romanism. Her Majesty has gone to visit the Roman pontiff. And just to show you that Rome never really does change, whether it was Queen Elizabeth or her sister or one other of the females of the royal family or the late Princess Diana, every time they went to see the Pope, they had to go dressed from head to toe in black in mourning for the separation of England from the Holy See. When the Queen of the Belgians, and I don't want in any way to belittle the Belgians, but Belgium really is a very little nation that uh, is largely powerless. Two world wars proved just how powerless. But when the Queen of the Belgians went to visit the Pope because she was a Romanist, representing a Roman Catholic constituency, she went in resplendent white. Symbolism does matter. Britain has largely fallen for the charms of Romanism. We have a state church that is more Roman than Protestant. When I looked at the funeral of Princess Diana, I was amazed to see the number of Roman Catholics or pseudo-Roman Catholics in the immediate royal family. It was a thing of scandal. And that that young lady lived, she had the double intention, we are told, of marrying a Muslim and converting to the Roman Catholic Church. You have to be British or at least understand the British Constitution to know the ramifications of the mother of our future monarch converting to the Roman Catholic Church. In America, things have fared no better. This country was founded by Protestants. Let's understand that. This country was made great by Protestants. It is the Protestantism of America that spawned its liberties. Let me state categorically that never in the history of the world has the Roman Catholic Church ever, ever formed a nation that gave people personal, political, and economic liberty. Never once in the history of this world. You read it and you'll find it's true. This country was made great by its Protestantism. And that means by its dedication to the gospel of this precious word. I feel this particularly personally because I come to you as someone born and bred and raised on the island of Ireland. Everybody knows that uh, every 17th of March, all America is Irish. I've been told of places where they paint, paint the traffic lines uh, along the streets in green. 
where the drunken sots will have their beer dyed green. I have known uh, since I came here of Jewish people who become Irish for that one day of the year. There is a great Irish vote. This is a pernicious and wicked and evil thing. The whole idea is of how much the Irish have contributed to the development of America. The Irish have. But let me make it clear, and you study your American history, and you'll find I'm dead on the ball here. It was not the Southern Irish. They fought against you in the name of the British monarch in the War of Independence. Those were the relatively the only southern Irish in the war. They were fighting against you. The American dream of a republic was conceived very largely in the minds and hearts of the sturdy, what you call the Scots-Irish, what we in our side of the pond call the Ulster Scots. They are the Irish, if you will call them Irish, who really led this country in the way of its liberty. I'm glad our young people are going to the Highland Games. Get a wee bit of your Scottish ancestry. You'll find out what mighty men they were. Not these wimps that you have at the Olympics throwing a javelin that weighs about six ounces or nine ounces. You see them tossing the caber, I hope. And the caber is just a telegraph pole. That, that's, the, that's the game. How far can you throw a telegraph pole? And that was the spirit that built this country, by the way. <laughs> Man, they were mighty men. They were mighty men. But what has happened today? America, the greatest political and economic power on earth, unique among the nations, Uniquely blessed among the nations. And I must say, uniquely good among the nations. No other great superpower has ever used its superpower with such beneficence as this country. It has made mistakes. It has done wicked, foolish, stupid things. But then men do that just by virtue of being men. But by and large, no nation has ever used its power so beneficently as this country. Yet today... It practically lives in the hip pocket of the Vatican. I don't know, I have not personally investigated this, but I have it on the authority of Dr. Bell that the United Nations only classified this country as a Christian country when they noted majority of Roman Catholics. How far Rome has gone along the road of the Counter-Reformation. The advent of the ecumenical movement, one church, the one world church movement, greatly helped her. And Rome latched on to that and uh, in the 1960s, launched the Second Vatican Council. And that marked the beginning, not of a, new strat of a new theology, but of a new strategy. The strategy was continue the theology of the Council of Trent, but put it in rather more tender tones. Whereas before, Trent had spoken of us as heretics. Now, we were separated brethren. Separated brethren to be brought in right enough, but uh, spoken to rather more tenderly. Whereas Council of Trent had made its statements theologically and then had added its canons, and in almost every case had added its anathema, its curse, upon everyone who did not go along with those canons. The Second Vatican Council reproduced all the theology but kept quiet on the anathemas. Of course, 
they're still there, but we just don't make them known. Most Protestant churches succumbed, and they entered into dialogue with the Church of Rome. And for many years, the World Council of Churches kept pushing toward institutional reunion. And again, with a great deal of success. Then came the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement differs from the Pentecostal movement in this. Pentecostalism formed separate denominations or independent churches that were avowedly, openly practicing Pentecostal. The charismatic movement introduced the so-called Pentecostal experience into the mainline churches and left the new practitioners of Pentecostalism in those churches. So that beside the old-line Pentecostal churches, you now had entire congregations that were Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopal, or great sections of those congregations, or ministers and elders, or other officials in those congregations that were practicing Pentecostal. Then that same experience was introduced into the Roman Catholic Church. Some priests began to speak in tongues. Some Roman Catholic cardinals began to speak in tongues. The Pope himself took notice of this, and Pope Paul welcomed the charismatic renewal in the Roman Catholic Church, and well, might he have done so, because soon the idea was abroad. If this is a work of God, and everybody accepted that it was, everybody except those who had a handle and a grip upon biblical doctrine. Oh yes, this is a work of God. This is the Holy Spirit falling upon people. And if the same Holy Spirit that falls upon Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians is now falling on Roman Catholic cardinals and priests and nuns and uh, people, then obviously the Holy Ghost is not making a difference between them. So therefore there is nothing too important to divide Protestants from Roman Catholics. And this was very carefully cultivated by Rome and by the charismatic leaders. Now, of course, the charismatic leaders in the Roman Catholic Church were very careful to keep themselves covered. When they talked about their experience of the Holy Ghost, they boasted that it gave them a greater love than ever for Mary. It gave them a greater love than ever for the Mass. But hold a second. Is the Mass a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit, as the 39 Articles of the Church of England say? Is the Mass abominably injurious to the once only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says? Because if it is, then how can it be that the Holy Ghost gives a person a love for blasphemy? But the Charismatics didn't want to think that way. David Duplessis, the South African uh, Pentecostalist who came to be known as Mr. Pentecost, spoke to this effect, and he said that to be truly charismatic, you must be ecumenical, and to be truly ecumenical, you must be charismatic. To help things along, the Church of Rome began to sound more and more evangelical. Some of you may remember that when the Pope visited South Carolina and he spoke uh, in the state, it was broadcast and televised all over the state. You know something? I listened very carefully to him. The Pope sounded every bit as evangelical as a Southern Baptist minister. He knew his audience. Rome can sound very, very evangelical. And this is what she set out to do. And her soft approach has paid off. Today, many evangelicals, not the apostates, not the uh, rationalists, the unbelievers, or the sacramentalists of the Episcopal movement, but even the evangelicals have endorsed the notion that Rome is truly Christian. 
and that our differences with her, however real, do not affect the fundamental unity we enjoy with her in the gospel. Just uh, a few years ago, a couple of years back, uh, under the guidance of a group in Chicago, there was produced a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Evangelicals and Catholics Together. I'll probably just refer to that from here on as ECT. So just you'll know what I'm talking about. It was signed by many leading Roman Catholics. Of course, here's the rub, you see. Roman Catholic, whether they're bishops, cardinals, or anybody else, when they sign something like this, they can never commit the Church of Rome to anything. The Church still stands by Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II, and the uh, Vatican documents. But they were there, and there were leading evangelicals. J.I. Packer was there. J.I. Packer is well known as a Reformed theologian of great ability, great insight, brilliant writer when he does his own writing. Scandal among some of these great names. They simply sell their name for ten or $20,000 and whoever else, uh, what other hack the publishing company can get to write, they write the material and it goes under the name of uh, a leading name and it sells. Of course, that's lying, it's thieving, it's uh, fraud. But uh, when he writes what's under his name, J.I. Packer is a brilliant writer. Sadly, he likes to be on both sides of the fence and right on top of the fence at the same time. Rather an uncomfortable thing to try and do. Later, he signed another document that tried to explain away the first one without repudiating the first one. Typical Packer. Leading men like Mark Knoll, Pat Robertson, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade, Oz Guinness, Charles Colson, a couple of leading men from the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as representatives from the National Association of Evangelicals, the Assemblies of God, and Worldwide Evangel or World Evangelism Fellowship. And this is a sample of what they wrote. There are approximately 1.7 billion Christians in the world. About one billion of these are Catholics, and more than 300 million are evangelical Protestants. But we're all Christians. We have, or we are, resolved to explore patterns of working and witnessing together in order to advance the mission of Christ. And here's the most skillful bit of Jesuitry in the whole thing. Meant to answer all the questions. We affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Now, I'm going to come back to that. That is meant to convey the message that the Roman Catholic Church really is not against the Protestant doctrine of justification. That we have misunderstood Rome. We affirm together we're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Then they say, all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the light of all this, one thing comes out, and it's obvious, that evangelicals and Roman Catholics should not recruit from each other. This is what they say. This is... Evangelicals and Catholics together. Such efforts at recruitment undermine the Christian mission. So if you are seeking to win Roman Catholics for Christ, rather than advancing the Christian mission, according to this, you are undermining the Christian mission. Then again it says, in view of the large number of non-Christians in the world and the enormous challenge of our common evangelistic task, it is neither theologically legitimate. That is academic speak for it's unbiblical. 
It is neither theologically legitimate nor a prudent use of resources for one Christian community to proselytize among active adherents of another Christian community. And while these people say believing in the First Amendment rights of all Americans, they would defend the right of any Christian to proselytize anybody else, yet they say, though that is your constitutional right, as a Christian you ought not to do it, and they plead with you not to recruit Roman Catholics out of the Church of Rome if they're active. And this is a scandalous thing. I grew up beside the most active Roman Catholic any person could ever know. The most upright man, the most honorable man, the most religious man. I have never met a person more religious. And I have to say, in character, more attractive. But when that man came to die, he was dying in darkness. And when the priest came to see him, he had not a word of gospel light. Not a word. Not a ray of hope. The only one who could go in there and open the Bible and give him the gospel and show him any way to heaven was my own mother. Now tell me, will you say it's unbiblical? Theologically, that it is unacceptable? That it was an illegitimate use of her Christian zeal to seek to win that man for Christ? That is the scandalous thing about this ECT. What it sets out to do effectively is to reverse the Protestant Reformation. Because the truth of the matter is that today, Rome is not less anti-Christian than she was at the time of the Council of Trent, but more anti-Christian she has not reduced her vicious inventions. She has added to her vicious inventions. She has not altered one iota of her what's called tridentine, that is, relating to the Council of Trent, her tridentine creed. She holds the same position in Scripture. The Second Vatican Council and the New Roman Catholic Catechism quotes the Vatican Council in this, that the Church does not draw her certainty in its doctrine solely from the Bible, that tradition and Scripture must be accepted equally. And of course, every time it comes to anything particularly Roman Catholic, the authority that's cited is the authority of tradition. She's the same on the Mass and transubstantiation, exactly the same. The Mass is still, we are told, an unbloody sacrifice, a sacrifice of expiation for the sins of the living and the dead. Our Protestant forefathers went to the stake rather than admit that the Mass is a sacrifice because they believed that Jesus Christ's sacrifice terminated at Calvary. Its merits go on infinitely and eternally, but the sacrifice took place at a point in history, and it finished at that point in history. It cannot be perpetuated. It cannot be reenacted. It cannot be added to. The Mass is a blasphemy. What a blasphemy. For a priest of Rome to take a little wafer of water and flour, and with his mumbo-jumbo, make it the very deity and humanity of Christ, that it is His entire body and blood, His entire humanity and deity, so that when you eat it, you are actually cannibalizing, literally, the body and blood of Christ. Blasphemy. If I were to go into the details into which the Church of Rome goes, or has gone. These are the things she hides nowadays. But these are in print. You can go and follow them through and study them for yourself. 
once that little wafer is consecrated, it becomes Christ. And it can't unbecome Christ. So it's got to be very carefully looked after. And Rome has gone into such details. What do you do if a mouse goes in and eats that host? And revolting. What would you do if you eat the host and you're sick and you vomit the host? That's Christ. She has all sorts of revolting little things like that that follow on from an equally revolting dogma. She's the same in that. She's even worse on Mary than she was in the days of the Council of Trent. And the present Pope is so much of a Mary Oliver. He is not a Christian. He's a Mary worshipper. The Second Vatican Council said the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate. It's a title of Christ. Helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. So they pray to her as a mediator between God and men. Pope John Paul II himself has written that in Mary is effected the reconciliation of God with humanity. In Mary is accomplished the work of reconciliation. That's the dogma of the present Pope. I'm always being told by people who want to be ecumenical, you people quote way back from the 16th century, you quote the Council of Trent. Well, that's quite allowable because it hasn't been revoked. But I want to tell you, I don't think the present Pope is from the 16th century. I think that's sort of slap bang up to date. And that's what he says. They're the same in Mary and worse. They're the same in purgatory. Purgatory is one of the most pernicious doctrines of the Church of Rome. Leads to the dogma of salvation by works. Purgatory is a place of suffering. The Church of Rome will tell you that the slightest pain in purgatory is worse than the worst pain ever endured on earth. That's the dogma of Rome. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen people suffer great agony. We have doctors and nurses, and some of them could talk here tonight and tell you what great agony really is. But as a minister going in to see people in a hospital room, I think of a, a man who was a good friend. You've heard me refer to him, Roy Melville, a beautiful, beautiful singer, a man who could sing like an angel. I remember going to visit him in a hospital in Belfast. And that six-foot-two-inch frame that once was broad and muscular was reduced to skin and bone, and his arms were as thick as my two fingers. In a long and agonizing death, and just to speak was agony, just the rub of a light linen sheet on the skin was unspeakable agony. That is nothing, nothing to the pains of purgatory. The slightest purgatorial pain is worse than the worst pain on earth. So says the Pope. People may be there for a year, ten years, twenty years, a hundred years, a thousand years, ten thousand years. And these are people, according to Rome, who died in grace. In grace. Who died in faith. Who died under the merits of Christ. But this is the Vatican belief. I quoted this to you before. Sins must be expiated. Hold a second. I thought the Bible said, that's what Christ did at Calvary. No, says the Pope, sins must be expiated. This may be done on earth through sorrows, miseries and trials of this life, and above all through death. Otherwise, expiation must be made in the next life through fire and torments and purifying punishments. 
So you die in grace, in faith, under the merits of Christ, and you still have to expiate your sin, according to Rome. You know, that is salvation by works. I have said before, and I said again, that ultimately Rome teaches that the the sufferings of Christ are enough to keep you out of hell, but it's only your own sufferings expiating your own sins that will get you into heaven. The work of Christ is enough to keep you out of hell, but it's only your own work that will get you into heaven. You've got to suffer your way out of purgatory into heaven. And of course, Rome still rejects the doctrine of justification by faith alone. ECT glosses over this. We affirm together we're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Rome will use those terms grace and faith, but not to teach what these evangelicals want us to believe. There's nothing new in that statement, you know, that that couldn't have been made in the days of the Protestant Reformation. Rome would have said, then we're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. The Council of Trent recognizes grace and salvation. It recognizes that you can't be saved without faith. But Trent and Rome will never say, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what you'll never say. According to the Church of Rome, the instrument in receiving the grace of justification is baptism. That's how you receive justification. It's baptism, not faith. It's baptism. And faith is not even a sure way to justification. According to Rome, you may lose the baptismal grace of justification in various ways. You may lose it by infidelity. If you fall into infidelity, you've lost your justification. But there's another way you may lose it, and that is by mortal sin. And according to the Church of Rome, if you die in mortal sin, and she has said, even though you have not lost faith, You still have faith in Jesus Christ. And you die in mortal sin. You lose your justification and you're damned eternally. Now hold a second. You still have faith in Christ according to Rome. But you're damned eternally. So obviously faith is not sufficient as an instrument to receive justification. And if you do lose your justification in this life... How can you have it restored? By faith alone in Christ alone? No, no. By penance. We are told we ought not to evangelize Roman Catholics. We should leave them there recognizing that there's enough in the church of Rome. This document tells us to let them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those evangelicals, J.I. Packer, Mark Knoll, Bill Bright, who, by the way, defended his writing or his signature to that ECT document by saying if we didn't follow it through, millions of Roman Catholics might be lost. Hold a second, he's just told us they're already Christians. And his feeling is, uh, I can only try to understand the stupidity of what he was saying, but uh, it it seems to me he's saying if, if we engage Roman Catholics in controversy, they're going to be having to pay such attention to us that they're not going to be paying enough attention to disciple their own people. I want to tell you that's not how Roman Catholics by the thousand will be saved. It will be by Protestants taking the gospel to them and evangelizing them. But according to these evangelicals, either justification by faith alone, the sufficiency of Scripture alone, very interesting, by the way, in ECT, every time they talk about Scripture, they also bring in a Roman Catholic formula of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church today, which is Rome speak for talking about its tradition and the power of the Pope to define dogma. Compromisers down the line, these people are. But, according to them, either justification by faith alone, the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of the finished work of Christ, the view of the Mass as a blasphemy, according to them, these things are not essential to the Gospel. Or, or, Rome now is biblical in all these points. But of course, both these propositions are false. And this is just another step in the counter-reformation. I mentioned the Charismatics. There is still a very, very major force in promoting the Church of Rome. 
Most charismatics, as you would think, are not very interested in theology. They're so interested in experience that theology really doesn't come into it too much. That's a very dangerous thing, by the way. Very dangerous thing. When your experience does not gel with the truth of the Word of God, no matter how holy your experience appears, it is wrong. Jack Hayford, a leading charismatic preacher in California, a darling boy of the charismatic movement, said, Redeeming worship, Roman Catholic language right away. Redeeming worship? Where do you ever read of that in the Bible? Redeeming worship? I've heard about redeeming blood. I've heard about redeeming grace. But redeeming worship? That brings redemption into the hands and the actions of man, not God. Redeeming worship centers on the Lord's table. Now listen, whether your tradition celebrates it as communion, Eucharist, the Mass, or the Lord's Supper, we are called to this centerpiece of Christian worship. So according to this charismatic preacher, really doesn't matter how you look at this, this is the centerpiece of redeeming worship. You may call it the Lord's table. You may call it the Mass. You may say it's a memorial. You may say this is the very body, bones, blood, and sinews of Jesus Christ, His deity and humanity. You may say it's a memorial. You may say it's a sacrifice. Look, doesn't really matter. This is the centerpiece. But I want to tell you, it does really matter. And the charismatics, by promoting experience over biblical revelation, are completing the counter-reformation. Another means of throwing Christians and Roman Catholics together was noted by the AP religion correspondent some time ago. And that is united action on social and moral issues, especially the abortion campaign. He says, what has brought evangelicals and Roman Catholics together are the experiences of worshipping together in charismatic movement and working together in political causes such as the anti-abortion movement. There are many other ecumenical groups. We have Billy Graham's inclusive evangelism, and he's not the only inclusive evangelist. There are many running in his train. Billy Graham told McCall's almost 20 years ago, that he shared the same basic beliefs as faithful Roman Catholics. Just last week, the whole country was transfixed with what the promise keepers were doing. I'm not going to talk tonight about the promise keepers and uh, their various aims and objectives, but I will say this, they are thoroughgoing ecumenicals giving the impression that Rome is Christian and acceptable. What I'm saying to you tonight that the Counter-Reformation is not something that took place in history. It's something that is reaching its climax and its completion in our day. And the issues at stake are crucial. Are we to give up the precious faith of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ for a mess of ecumenical pottage? Are we to abandon the millions of Roman Catholics in this world to Rome's gospel, which Galatians chapter 1 curses with the curse of God. Are we? Are we to say with these evangelicals, leave these Roman Catholics? I worked in an office for a couple of years in Belfast. The nicest girl in the office was a Roman Catholic. Truly a lovely young lady, admirable, likable, easy to work with, a hard worker, a young woman of principle, of morality, of decency. All those are very positive virtues. But Gwen needed to be saved. My immediate boss, who later became a Presbyterian minister, I always said, as a preacher, he was a very good insurance man. He should have stayed in the insurance business. But he really would have married this girl had she not been a Roman Catholic. He was a professing Christian, an evangelical of this kind. One day I got to talking, well, many days I got to talking with Gwen. I talked to everybody in that office about the Lord. 
And I spoke to Gwen, and she was completely, absolutely nonplussed. This is the young woman who went confessing to her priest that she was talking to a Protestant boy, and he told her she was not to speak to me again on any matter of religion. So she reported. She was overwhelmed and overjoyed when I said, Gwen, I want to go see your priest. She said, that's very good. She could see the carnage coming. I said, only one condition. I want you to be there. I want you to see that your priest has no answer to God's Word. I want you to see that your priest is not giving you the truth. I want you to be there when I bring your priest to the Bible. I couldn't do that. I say that as background. This was a... I could say I loved this girl because she was older than I was. I'm not speaking now in a romantic sense, but just as a, a young woman you love to work with, you love to be around, you love to talk to, never accept that Roman Catholics in Ireland will take the Lord's name in vain and not know they're doing it. And she did that. Beyond that, there was never a wrong word would come from her mouth. I'd love to have seen her see it. So I witnessed to her. And as I witnessed, I believe God began to speak to her heart. She was totally nonplussed, confused. But what she was hearing was so different from what her church was teaching. And then my boss came along and just put his arm around her shoulder, slapped her in the back. Hail fellow well met said, oh, Gwen, never mind. You'll be all right. So ended the last opportunity I ever had to speak to that girl about the gospel. If you ever wanted to hear a free Presbyterian tear the inside out of an Irish Presbyterian compromiser, you should have walked with Sam and me to the bus that night. He was my boss, but outside the door, I was going to talk to him about the sin that he had just committed. Are we going to abandon Roman Catholics to a Christless gospel and a Christless life and a Christless death and a Christless hell? Are we going to repudiate the only gospel that can do sinners good? Never. Then what are we to do? Listen, do what David and his men did when the old enemy arises. Confront them in the name and power of God. How do you do that? Listen, get to know the gospel. That's the first thing. I am amazed at the ignorance of the gospel that abounds today. Get to know the gospel. And then get to preach and spread the gospel. I said when I went out into business, I witnessed to everybody in that office. When I went into the building, I witnessed to the lift boy. He ran the elevator up and down this little building. A dead-end job for somebody who had no prospect of anything much in life at all. A Roman Catholic from one of the IRA strongholds of Belfast. The rest of the people who come in, even professing Christians, they would hardly say good morning. He was only the lift boy. I was actually rebuked by my superiors. Your position in this firm says that you should not be seen talking to the lift boy. That's what I was told. And I told them bluntly, my position as a Christian is that he has an immortal soul and I will talk to the lift boy. I don't care what you say. And I did talk to him. I witnessed to them all. Only one of them that I know got saved. The girl who was my secretary. But I... Came across Christian, I came across one Christian girl there. And of course, my boss was a Christian, and they never witnessed to anybody. It was only when I started witnessing that then they came out of the woodwork and, oh, well, I'm a Christian too, but nobody ever heard of it. 
We need today Christians who know the gospel and who will spread the gospel, who will talk the gospel, who will walk the gospel, who will live what they preach and preach as they live. Wherever they go, my friend, the best answer to the counter-reformation of Rome is Protestant believers in Jesus Christ on fire for God, filled with the Holy Ghost, with a love for their Savior, a burden for souls. They're not sold out to the ecumenism of the world. They're not sold out to the materialism of the world. They're sold out to Christ. That's the answer. That's the answer. Thank God, Rome never has had a response, never will have a response to a people so on fire for God. May the Lord tonight give us grace. We need another reformation. He's able to give it to us. But one thing is certain, He never will give it to us. Why we are frittering away the blessings of the first one He gave us. May God make us keenly aware of the blessings we have and of the duties that lie upon us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.